Sorry for messing up one of the slides up there. I gave the wrong call number for the wrong passage. Um, it's just, you know, I have the Bible memorized, and sometimes I just get the... <laughs> I know the words. I just... <laughs> it's, not, it's not because I'm uh, easily distracted while making the slides. All right, tonight we are in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14. If you, if you want to grab one of those Bibles, it's in the pew. It's on page 1222. Uh, otherwise, it'll be on the screen. Uh, if you brought your own Bible, I'm not good enough to know what page it was on. Uh, we, uh, we got a, a passage tonight where uh, Jesus is um, it, it's a little bit sharp-tongued. So let's, uh, let's stand in front of this and see, see what we can uh, get from it here. Uh, Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 33 says this. Now large crowds were traveling with him, and he turned, and he said to them, Whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even life itself, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intended, intending to build a tower does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule him. Saying, this fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to war against another king, will not sit down first and consider whether he's able with 10,000 to oppose one who comes against him with 20,000? If he cannot, if he cannot, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all of your possessions. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us, Thanks be to God. It's a short sermon tonight. I just need you to hate your family, <laughs> carry the cross, hate your life, and give all your stuff away. Amen. I'll see you next week. In another demonstration of what I can only call terrible marketing, Jesus seems intent on shrinking his growing crowd in Luke chapter 14. Now, everybody knows that if you want to build larger crowds, if you want to build a bigger following, you should cast wider nets, right? In order to make things more acceptable to people, you sometimes even have to change the nature of it a little. If it's your favorite uh, long-term, uh, used-to-be-unknown band or comedian or something like that, you would call it selling out, right? Suddenly, the music or the jokes are becoming more and more palatable for the masses, and yeah, sure, the new album will get radio play, but you're a real fan. You like their old stuff when they recorded it in a garage with a tape player and you couldn't hear the words. You cast a wider net. You make it more palatable for everybody. That's how you get a bigger crowd. And yet Jesus, every time a larger crowd starts to gather, he does the opposite of whatever selling out is. And to be honest, um, Jesus makes my job a lot harder when he does it. Some of my position is generally considered to be a part of Jesus' marketing team. And Jesus holds uh, words like, they're so sharp and they're so difficult, right? And Jesus holds this tension that I have a hard time holding. It's the tension that Jesus has between the balm of grace and the irritant of honesty. I struggle doing both those at once. Honesty and grace are not easily balanced. Sometimes it feels more gracious to soft pedal or to dance around something that we should just be direct about. 
And then the other side, we've all seen, and a lot of you have sat through and suffered from the devastating effects of the religious who have neglected grace altogether for the quote-unquote truth. As if something can be true and ungracious at the same time. And we've all seen or experienced being the wounded who get further abused by this lack of grace. So it can feel like the necessary corrective to then lack conviction completely because we've seen this other mistake made on the other side. It's hard to hold this tension of grace and truth at the same time. I don't think I do it very well often in my life. And part of what makes Jesus so fascinating and frustrating is that no one seems to be as gracious and honest at the same time as Jesus does. Jesus welcomes the lonely, forgives the worst among us, heals the broken, exposes himself to disease and disrepute by those he draws close to. And he draws near to all of us with the patient and caring love of a shepherd who would die for the benefit of his sheep. And then like today, he senses that he has unconsidered followers, people who aren't really understanding what this is all about, and he drops these bombs. Hate your family, hate your life, embrace a brutal death, count the cost, give up all your possessions, thank you, good night. You think I came to bring peace? No, I came to bring a sword. Don't forget to tip your waitress. Right, and now there's this certain group, uh, a certain group of Christians, or a certain group of uh, disciples who he senses are not getting the gravity of the situation. There's an old story, I'm not sure if it's legend or if it's true, and I can't even remember the specific person it's about, but I like it nonetheless. I thought it was about Wesley, and then one of my Methodist friends told me it, it isn't, but uh, it was uh, one, of the, one of the big preachers that was coming over from England and doing the, uh, going all throughout the United States and doing these huge revivals. And the first couple times they came through, the first couple tours, hundreds of thousands of people walked down the aisle. Hundreds of thousands of people got baptized and were added to the flock. And he would come back and report that to those who were kind of farther up the chain and everyone would celebrate. And he began to get a sense, kind of like Jesus seems to hear, that people may not have really been understanding or taking seriously the gravity of what he was preaching. So the third time back, he brought some really heavy, hard news. And when the whole thing was done, he went back to his superiors and they said, well, how many blessed addictions to the kingdom? And it is reported, again, maybe it's just legend, but I like it. He said, none, but many blessed deductions. And this is where we stand with Jesus tonight. There's a certain group of Christians, I think, that get excited by verses like this because now they have their proof text to batter anyone that they would like, themselves excluded, of course. And I don't want to do that. I have no interest in that. I've seen what it does. But I also want to take this seriously. How do we stand in front of this? How do we take it seriously we, uh, of this kind of teaching from Christ and also hold at the same time Christ's clear teachings on love and grace and patience and hope and peace? How do we hold the genuine weight of this call to discipleship without letting it crush us? Can we stand in front of it without just pretending it doesn't exist altogether? I'll be honest, I don't believe that this, this is hard to hear in this text. It's not an easy text to listen to, but I don't believe this teaching at all compromises God's grace. It's hyperbolic. It's strongly worded. It's intended to offend. That is how it is framed. But I do think that it clarifies something we need to hear. And ultimately, I think it's good news. Even if it feels like 
be shouted, and it certainly isn't easy. It is good. And I was preparing for this this week. I was brought back to a very old school ecclesia, like literally the first week we were kind of officially a church. And you heard last week about meeting upstairs and the sweaty upstairs room and all that. That first week as a church, we tried to think about what do we talk about in our first week. What we landed on and what it was talked about was monotheism, right? Start off with the basics, you know. And we talked about the radical Jewish idea that was some central tenet that we find in the Torah. Uh, we'll, if you open your Bibles, you would find it in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, roughly. Uh, it's known as the Shema Yisrael. And, and here's what it says. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give to you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them to your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, heart, soul, and strength. Right? You're recognizing this from Jesus' teachings as well. This call to Israel underlies everything. Right? It's the basis for what we call the greatest commandment. And Yahweh takes it very seriously. He tells people to not forget it. Tattoo it on your heart. Tell your kids. Talk about it constantly. When you're sleeping and when you're waking, which is that's, that's pretty much all the time. Put it on your doorframe. Fasten it to your hand and to your head, which some sects of Judaism still do. It is the underlying, uh, it, it underlies everything that they teach and believe. It is that fundamental. And it was revolutionary and unique at the time, because typically in the ancient world, everyone knew that there were multiple gods out there to deal with. If I was in the ancient world and I was going to take a long trip, um, which, you know, would take a whole lot because I didn't have what we have today, I would prepare to appease a whole host of gods that I would have to go underneath on the way, right? I might bring sacrifices for the gods of the plains and the god of rain and the gods of the forest and the god of health and the god of travel and fill in the blank. All of life was this balancing act of appeasing a whole host of gods for the sake of safety, for the sake of my progeny, for the sake of my crops and my security. There was this quid pro quo going on with a whole host of gods of varying temperaments. And into this world, Jewish faith is formed on the belief that there is one God. The Lord is one. There is one God who chooses to love and provide good gifts to us all. Right? And for the monotheists that come from them, there is this only one God above all, and nothing falls outside of this God's lordship. Everything and everyone is ordered underneath that one God, and this one God is not ordered by anything else. This was a radically new idea. And you could argue that humanity's been struggling with it ever since. Now, monotheism is no longer considered a radical concept. Most people understand it and or would consider themselves to be one. But it is still very difficult to live out if we hold our feet to the fire on it. And it might look a little differently now. I don't leave the first burger on the grill uh, and let it burn up to appease the god of rain so that I can continue my cookout. That's not how I do pantheism. I, pray to this, I may pray to the same God for healing and for sustenance and before a meal. 
But I can still admit to you that I don't order everything under one true God. I'm not a great monotheist. I still tend to request that God stick within some prearranged boundaries that I have created. Now, maybe you grew up in the culture that allowed you to kind of disassociate the Saturday night from the Sunday morning you. God had God's place. Leave me alone on Saturday nights, please. Maybe, maybe God is the Lord of one's religious belief, but my relationships and how I relate to people and the kind of relationships I'm in, they're ordered by something else. Maybe, maybe God is the Lord of church, but I run a business, and business is business, and so God doesn't really have anything to do with that part of my life. We segment things off. We wouldn't call it pantheism, but it isn't monotheism. And it's the kind of pantheism that I think God is railing against in these passages. And it's worth considering in our own lives. Now, I hope when you read these words, no matter how difficult they are, I hope it's obvious to you that Christ is not asking people to actively disdain or mistreat their family or anyone. If someone ever uses this text to try and convince you otherwise, you are looking at a cult and you should walk away. And there are cults that do that. They use this verse particularly to try and separate people from their families uh, to get their money, get all their allegiance, all those kind of things. That is not what Jesus is talking about here. But Jesus is naming those things that would chiefly determine how a person operated in the world at his time. Their family name, their history, their traditions were far more determinative for his original audience than they are for us today. They're not irrelevant now. I know some people who still have very strong family structures that are very determinative in some ways. Generally speaking, we are far too individualistic um, to even compare to the kind of culture that Jesus was talking to immediately. If anything, we are more likely to try and redefine ourselves outside of our families at some point. Uh, Teen rebellion, all that good stuff. But Christ's point holds true. Whatever areas of our lives have a tendency to define us or determine who we are in the world, Those are supposed to be ordered by the one true God if we choose to be God's disciple. Every decision has a cost, and you should measure that cost. And by cost, we mean uh, you are by nature choosing against everything else. It is costing you those options. Every decision has a cost, and that is particularly true in choosing who your God will be. The definition of a God is that which orders everything else. That which orders everything else. Once you choose to be a disciple, everything else gets defined in that light. And this is what Jesus needs this growing crowd to try to understand. I will confess, I am no paragon of discipleship. Unfortunately, I wish I was. But I can attest to this truth in my life. As poor a disciple as I am. Any actual attempt I make to order my entire life under Christ's teachings, life, death, etc., messes things up. Jesus has changed relationships for me. Jesus messed up perfectly good jobs. It cost me a good bit of money. And he's taken the wind out of my incalculable attempts to define myself elsewhere on a daily basis. It's kind of like a little death that you carry around with you, but a good one. A cross, if you will. And maybe that's why Jesus uses that jarring image. And it had to be even more jarring before the story of the crucifixion, which they didn't know yet. 
Jesus uses this jarring image of carrying your cross for a reason. Because there is no carrying a cross and doing life as normal. That would have been an absurd and scary image. You don't just get to walk around and act like everything was just like it was the day before if you were nailed to a cross. You and everyone around you sees it for what it is and adapts accordingly. And I think this is why Jesus ends this section the way he does. Talking about selling all your possessions. Now, I hope I'm not just sidestepping this. And I really hope that this does not mean uh, that we are to wander naked and penniless through the wilderness alone in order to be a disciple. I don't think that's what God is getting at or what Christ is getting at here. I do think that possessions are more than just money and stuff, although certainly that is included. I think our possessions are those things in our lives and more, more often than not find a way to possess us and define us. They are determinative of how we compare, how we feel about ourselves, what we think about ourselves. They give definition and meaning to our lives. They possess So in getting rid of possessions, Jesus is talking as much about an exorcism as he is a garage sale. And this, this is the cost of discipleship. It's a casting out of everything else that we allow to control and define us. It's an intolerance towards competing gods in our own hearts and in our own minds. Jesus asks us to carry that cross everywhere to ensure no part of our lives or ourselves is untouched by Christ's unsacrificial love and grace and peace. And while these are sharp words, and while this news is not easy to hear, I would argue based on the alternatives, it's very good news indeed. Let's pray.